0: Is a thing. And one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five star review. Also, perhaps even more effective than that, you can share our podcast with a friend. We hope you'll take the time to do so. Thank you so much. God bless. Please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word. Our text for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. If you're joining us for the first time, our plan, starting next Lord's Day, Lord willing, is to begin an expositional preaching series through the book of Joshua. But for today, our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. I'll read our text for us in its entirety when I finish reading the text I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord at which point I would appreciate very much if you would respond by saying thanks be to God one final time first Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 19 the Bible says this but if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Please be seated. In your notes. Dealing with verses 14 and 15 of our text, I've written the following. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is both empty and a false witness against God. And if Christ is not raised, our faith is empty and useless. So what were these people in Corinth then putting their faith in? It should be assumed that many of the Corinthians trusted in Christ fully. After all, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing to the church. However, it appears that at least some of the Corinthians were like many people today, who merely believe that Jesus was a great teacher and a worthy example of the way of love. They believed that the stories of Jesus' resurrection were merely symbols pointing to the triumph of the human spirit, and that Jesus' influence is what was resurrected and would live on after his death. They did not say, in other words, they did not say, the resurrection is all a myth, therefore we must reject it. Rather, like many professing Christians today, they said the resurrection is a myth, therefore we must reinterpret it. That is where we find ourselves, Today, with many professing Christians, they simply attempt to reinterpret the resurrection of Jesus rather than saying the resurrection of Jesus is not literal. It is not physical. It did not actually happen within human history. Therefore, it is of no value. They simply attempt to reinterpret the resurrection to say it doesn't have to be literal. It doesn't have to be actual, historical, physical in order to have value. The value is simply the symbol, the metaphor. The value is what we make of it. But brothers and sisters, if this is the case, we do not need Christ. We have William Wallace for that. We have Joan of Arc for that. We have Polycarp. We have William Tyndale. History is rife with examples of men and women, predominantly men, who died a martyr's death, a loving, sacrificial death on behalf of their fellow man, people who paid the ultimate price. We have Well, we have all sorts of individuals just within American history. People who die. That's what Memorial Day is all about. Someone laying down their life in the pursuit of duty and freedom and prosperity so that others might live. But what the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 19 is that Christ's resurrection is much more than merely an example of sacrificial love. Jesus himself says, a man has no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. It is true, scripturally, that the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, is a moral example of sacrificial love. But that is not all that the crucifixion is if that is all that the crucifixion is, then there is no gospel and there is no salvation. And you and I are still dead in our sins underneath the white hot wrath of God. Christus victor is an appropriate view of the crucifixion. The moral example is an appropriate view of the crucifixion. The ransom atonement is not an appropriate view of the crucifixion because it raises Satan to a pedestal and height that he does not deserve, nor does he in actuality achieve. The idea that God would have to pay a ransom to his enemy in order to take us back. God doesn't have to pay a ransom to Satan in order to redeem us. God can just crush Satan. You only pay a ransom when you're not able to overcome your threat. But that is not the case. Jesus is put forward as a ransom of sorts. The better word would be propitiation. But not to pay Satan. But to pay God. God the Father puts forward God the Son as payment to God the Father for the atonement of our sin. It is God who needed to be satisfied, not the devil. It is God's justice that demanded recompense. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from blood. The book of Hebrews teaches that. The book of Hebrews also teaches us that the blood of bulls and goats will never take away sin. So it must be blood, but it cannot be merely the blood of animals. It is the blood of Christ. It is his atonement, his propitiation, satiating sacrifice, his death, his payment that satisfies not Satan's wickedness, but rather God's justice, so that God, who is thrice holy can pardon sinners without compromising his righteousness. The cross at Calvary, in the death of Jesus, is where both the perfect righteousness and justice, as well as mercy and grace of God, kiss, as it were. Neither compromising the other. This is the view of penal substitutionary atonement. The death of Jesus is an example, a moral example, which we as his disciples should seek to follow, that we should be willing to sacrifice our very lives for others, sacrificial love, the moral example. Christus victor, that Christ is raised and ruling and conquering. This is also true and biblical. But apart from penal substitutionary atonement, we lose the entirety of the Christian faith. It is the heart of the gospel. that Christ is our substitute. He did not merely die as example. He died in our place. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He died as a substitute in your place for your sins. His death should have been your death. And his life is not a life that you and I deserve. But rather, because of God's mercy and grace, we have been granted eternal life. And he paid the penalty, the wages of our sin, which is death, so that we might live forevermore with him. Paul is addressing some, I do not believe the majority, but some of the Corinthians, perhaps in the church, but certainly in the broader society, who are saying that the resurrection is a myth, that there is no resurrection from the dead, that once you die, that's it. They are saying this, not realizing the implications of that statement, that if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then not only do we not have hope after this life, for a life to come, but even within this life, we are underneath God's condemnation rather than his forgiveness. The Apostle Paul links the resurrection of Jesus to the forgiveness of sins. He links the resurrection of Jesus to the forgiveness of sins. Now, how is this theologically possible? Is it not the death of Jesus that satisfies the wrath of God? Is it not the shed blood of Jesus in his crucifixion that atones for sin? Yes, it is. However, the scripture says that he died for the forgiveness of sins, but was raised for our justification. That we might be declared righteous in the court of God. What is it about the resurrection of Jesus that deals with the forgiveness of sins and the justification of sinners? Going on in your notes, I've written the following If Christ was not raised, then his death accomplished nothing for the forgiveness of our sins. And if Christ accomplished nothing to remove the guilt and condemnation of our sins, then we are still dead in our sins and under the wrath of God. To be dead in your sins is the opposite of being alive in Christ. When a person is in Christ, they get what Christ can do for them, namely eternal life. However, when a person is in their sins, they get what sin can do for them. Namely, eternal condemnation and death. But if the resurrection, or if the death of Jesus, rather, completely satisfied the Father's wrath towards sin, then why does our text say that we are still in our sins if Jesus did not rise from the dead? The answer is that the resurrection of Jesus was the reward for his sacrifice. If the reward is withheld, it is because the sacrifice was deficient. If God will not let his own son go free from the grave and take his seat at his right hand in glory, it can only be because his son's sacrifice for our sins was defective it was not sufficient, it is not enough. The resurrection of Jesus is what validates the infinite value of the blood of Jesus. If Christ is raised, then his sacrifice is sufficient. As one theologian once said, the resurrection is the exclamation point to the crucifixion and more particularly to the statement of Christ himself as he was being crucified when he says, it is finished. The empty tomb is the confirmation, God's stamp of approval, the seal, the promise that Christ's statement on the cross, it is finished, was true. That it is indeed finished. That the wrath of God has indeed been fully satisfied on our behalf that the punishment you and i deserve as sinners for the wages of sin is death that punishment has been dealt with in full the empty tomb is the proof as david said in the psalms you will not let your holy one see decay why because everything he did was holy Everything he is, is holy. And everything he did is perfect, final, complete, including his payment for sin on the cross. The resurrection is the confirmation of the crucifixion. That penal substitutionary atonement is sufficient. That Christ's death as substitute in our place actually worked. The resurrection says that the cross worked. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, Romans 4, 25. The late great Puritan, a Baptist, I might add, one of the few good Puritan Baptists, but a Baptist nonetheless, God bless him, John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, Fantastic allegorical story writer. Not as fantastic in his poetry, but this one is good. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Doubt not his sacrifice can save. God sealed it. That is, he proved it with an empty grave. He was raised for our justification. The resurrection is God's confirmation that the son's statement, it is finished, is true, eternally true, for all who believe. Lastly, dealing with verses 18 and 19 of our text, I'll read them once more so they're fresh in our minds. Then those also... Who have fallen asleep, Paul continues his argument, a day in the life of no resurrection. It's almost like the movie, A Wonderful Life, if George had never been born. We hear the Apostle Paul deals with all of human life if Christ had never been raised. He says, also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is, those who have died, even those who died in faith in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. And this, brothers and sisters, is quite a statement because there are many pitiful people in our world. Muslims are to be pitied. Jews are to be pitied. Agnostics and atheists are to be pitied. Democrats are to be pitied feminists are to be pitied the LGBT jihad is to be pitied all of these are pitiful people but none of them compare to the most pitiful people of all which is Christians if Christ was not raised if there is no resurrection for Christ then there is no resurrection for us Once someone is dead, they forever cease to exist. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the Christian faith is utterly worthless. It does not maintain some value. It is not worth any value. It is not worth showing up to church even just one day a year, much less 52 times. C.S. Lewis once said this, Christianity, more particularly in light of our topic today, the resurrection of Jesus, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is of moderate importance. The Christian faith is not somewhat important. It is not partially significant. It either has no value or it has infinite value. And again, some might say, well, I think there's value even if it's not literally true that Christ rose from the dead. The principles within the Christian tradition have value in and of themselves, pastor. Yeah, But you don't need the Christian faith for those principles apart from the person of Jesus. You can arrive at those principles in other ways. Apart from the person of Christ, the principles of Christ will not ever produce the peace of Christ. I'll say that again. Apart from the person of Christ, the living, resurrected person of Christ, The mere principles of Christ will never produce the peace of Christ. The problem in our world is that many in our nation specifically have abandoned the principles of Christ. And there are others still trying to cling to some of those principles, but doing so arbitrarily. We'll keep this one, but not that one. Gaze against groomers how stupid is that perverts against other greater perverts no you no. you don't need a renegade of perverts to stop an onslaught of perversion that doesn't work you don't cast out utter darkness with kind of darkness you cast it out with light and only light to say that the principles of Christ somehow save our nation which ones and who decides see the reason why we can say all of them is because it's not a statement that hinges upon our own authority the reason why we can say all of god's commandments are righteous and holy and good is because christ is the authority and he is alive we don't just say hey this book we recognize it's special it's kind of like the springhead, the start of the river's source and from it come all these other branching off lesser streams right we see good principles and good virtues and beowulf and the odyssey and the iliad and all these other things, but they all find their source in this special book. And it's a really great book. But I'm not going to say that it's in the infallible Word of God. And I'm not going to say that Jesus is literally, physically risen from the dead. Then, then you have no hope. You have no hope. And you have no basis. You have no credible authority For recommending some of this book to people it's either all or nothing and the only reason that you can make such a significant and weighty and conscious binding claim an authoritative incredible claim that this book every jot and tittle is morally binding on every conscience of every person in every place and in every time The only way that you can make that statement with weight and authority is if you are merely echoing that statement as made by Christ. It is the person and work of Jesus that is the basis for all we believe. Societies that reject Christ, his person and his work, those societies crumble. It is not a matter of if, but merely when. They slowly spiral into oblivion. They slowly dissolve into their own lawlessness. A rejection of Christ is a rejection of the peace that he brings. Peace is found in a person. It cannot be severed from Christ. There is no peace apart from Christ. A nation that exalts Christ will be exalted. The nation that fears the Lord will be exalted, the Psalms say. But when the foundations are eroded and destroyed, what can the righteous do? Our nation has no hope apart from repentance. You've heard me often say a conservative resurgence is not sufficient it must be a distinctly Christian reformation and revival. And this does not come by repenting in part, but in full. It is not enough to say, you know what, we'll be of the party that walks to hell just a little slower. No. No, we, we are turning 180 degrees by grace through faith in Christ and following Him in the opposite direction. I think many of us today subconsciously believe that societies can only decline in terms of virtue. And this is naive and ignorant because it cannot account for how we got here in the first place. You look around our nation and Western societies as a whole and you think it's dissolving into chaos and sin and rebellion so quickly. But if that were the case, if that was the only mode of humanity, just compromising virtue for vice and spiraling so quickly, the human race would have ended thousands of years ago. How did we last so long? Do you think that, that humanity was just perfect and, and, and then has slowly spiraled for about 6,000 years, give or take, and then really ramped up in its rebellion over the last 50, and especially the last 15? And then you haven't read any history. That's simply not true. I mean, very quickly, very quickly, God, after creating man in a state of integrity, or some theologians would say a state of innocence, able to not fall, but also able to fall, very quickly, man chose to fall. Some have debated when the fall took place. I would agree with Rush Dooney, North, and others. Kenneth Gintry would be an example. But Adam and Eve fell on the eighth day. They did not last for years or decades or months or even weeks. But they were created on the sixth day, celebrated the Sabbath on the seventh, and rebelled on the eighth, which is in part why within the Jewish Old Testament tradition, a Hebrew boy would be circumcised on the eighth day. Blood and cutting and falling away. Very quickly within human history, sin entered the world. And immediately, shortly after that, we see the first murder take place. We have an entire line, namely the line of Cain, an entire half of humanity that devolves into further and further moral. Rebellion, And we see this culminate even more so in the days of Noah. When God decides to cleanse the world, lovingly cleanse his creation by drowning wicked people. And we see things get better for a while and then get worse again. Israel and its history is always one step forward and two to seven steps back. Many of us cannot logically account for the blessings and prosperity that we have experienced in our lifetimes, in our generation, in our culture, in our society. We think it just always was that God started it that way and we've only declined from there. No. Western society was pagan. The Irish we were pagan the English were pagan the Scots were pagan we once were painting our faces blue sailing on the high seas and destroying whole villages and women and children that's our origin story that's our heritage but then the gospel came And it changed not just individual, private, pietistic little hearts, but it changed the world. It changed governments, laws, nations, cultures, holidays, the calendar, history, everything. And if the West will not repent and pay homage to the one who saved us and gave us every blessing we have, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights. If we will not repent and call upon his name. And I've said before and I'll say again now. It won't be long until Zambia and Uganda have commercials on their TV programs. That say for just a dollar a day you can feed a little white kid and give them a Christian education there's nothing inherent in skin pigment but there is something very potent in the gospel of Jesus Christ he brings people high and he decimates them when they rebel against him and brings them low I don't have a crystal ball I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet But with common sense and an open Bible, you can pick up on a lot. And it seems as though if the West will not repent, then Christendom may spend the next thousand years in Africa, in parts of Asia, in South America. And a thousand years from now, there'll be a rise of wokeness again. Some liberal progressive blue-haired feminist theologian saying this is racist against white people they're all poor and you're making christianity just all about being colored that rhetoric has never been against whiteness all the rhetoric from the left it's only communism it's only marxism They only picked race because it's unique to American history. They couldn't pick economic classes. You know why? It wouldn't work. Because the blessings of Christ are too prosperous. You can't get the peasants to rise up against the bourgeoisie when the peasants have two weeks vacation, work five days a week, own a home and a car, and their kids can afford to go to school. They just don't have that much to get angry about. Class warfare in the economic sense, which was Marx's true belief, didn't work because capitalism eradicated poverty. Why? Because it has its principled roots in the Bible. So they made it about slavery, racism. And that works. Because we have no shortage of ignorance among young people in our nation today. But you look behind every single one of these organizations and at the top, you don't find an oppressed black person. You find a Marxist white person who picks the three women of Black Lives Matter because they're useful idiots to get across their ultimate goal which is to eradicate capitalism, eradicate the patriarchy, eradicate Western civilization, the scientific method, all these different things, and what ultimately is the nucleus source of everything that I've just listed? The Christian faith. Marx said that his highest goal was to dethrone God. He also said that the only way to kill the heavenly father, is to destroy the earthly father. And if our nation continues in its foolishness, being useful idiots, getting angry about silly things, if that continues, it ultimately is not a war on white people or a war on black people or a war on men or a war on women. It's a war on Christ. It's a war on Christ. And if the enemy is permitted to win that war, we will devolve into the same pagan roots from which we came. And whether it's 50 years from now or 500, we'll be the same pagans Vikings, talking about Valhalla, going and decimating and destroying people, living for ourselves. No order, no civilization, no virtue, nothing. Because none of that was ever inherent to us. It always rightfully belonged to Christ. And he graciously gave it to us. So long as we submitted to His kingship and lordship, but Christ will bless any man who submits to Him. Whether that's an American, whether that's a Scot, whether that's an Irish man, an English man, whether that's a man from Zambia, Uganda, the Sudan, whether that's a man from China or Brazil. Wherever submission to Christ can be found, and wherever that submission begins to permeate cultures and customs and societies, there the blessings of God follow. And wherever rebellion against Christ and his lordship, wherever that takes place, only darkness, tragedy, destruction, and poverty follow. Principles are not enough. Politics are not enough. It must be a person. A living person. A resurrected person. And not just a man, but the God-man. Christ Jesus. He changed the world. He is still changing the world. And all of the Father's covenant promises and blessings flow through him. Just as the oil, when anointing the Levitical priesthood, would fall upon the head first and then run down to the body, the robes and tassels and arms and legs, so too all the blessings of God first pour out on the head who is Christ. And they only reach those who are his body, who have union with him through faith. We have been that people before. We can be that people again. But for the sake of clarity, let me say, many of you are aware that I hold to a post-millennial eschatology. That postmillennial eschatology means that I believe in a victorious, progressively and ultimately victorious America. No, church, and that that church is so potent with Christ's gospel and His law that it will change and transform not only churches on Sunday but whole societies and nations. But for God to bring about His decretive will and his progressive victory throughout human history through the spearhead, which is the church on earth, he does not have to do it through this nation. If Christ tarries for 10,000 years, I believe he will come back to a Christianized world. But that world may or may not have the nation of the United States of America in it. Many nations have risen and fallen. Many nations have come and gone. That's why, by God's grace, you homestead, you plant a garden, you work hard, you take a second job, and you save up enough money to where your grandchildren, when we're gone, they can move their families Zambia (laughs) that might be the new beachhead of Christendom if this falls but if it falls let this nation fall over our dead bodies after having done everything we can because this republic is worth preserving there's a heritage here but it's all rooted in Christ it is not libertarianism It is not classical liberalism. It is not principled pluralism. It is not polytheism that is our strength. It is not even diversity that is our strength. It is unity in faith in the triune God. That is the source of our blessing and the rejection of Christ and his resurrection will be the source of our destruction. Let us turn back to him. The last thing I'll say is this. I find it interesting, and I think that you should notice this as well. I find it interesting that secularism, secular humanism, is merely a placeholder. Secular humanism is not viable. Islam is viable. Not indefinitely, but it is viable in the sense that Islam is a counterfeit Christian heresy. Muhammad, very clearly, the author of the Quran, you can see him copying the Christian tradition in AD 700, give or take. And certain things, right, because the best lie, the most believable one, it carries 90% truth. That's what makes it believable. And so what you see Muhammad doing is trying to sprinkle in Christian truth into his book of heresies so that it might have credibility it might be believable now Muhammad wasn't a good Christian theologian so he didn't know which Christian stories narratives circulating around at the time were actually true and which ones were heresies and so the Quran finds certain Christian heresies and stories docetism and Arianism and things stories about you know Jesus uh, preaching a sermon as an infant That he stopped nursing for a little while to go ahead and rebuke people who were saying bad things about his mommy. You know, or the story that when Joseph and, and Mary were fleeing to Egypt, that Jesus spoke from Mary's womb. Because she was hungry and tired and caused a tree to supernaturally bend over so that she could grab a piece of fruit. Muhammad is trying to make the Quran sound true by including Christian stories. He just didn't know which Christian stories were true because he was not a Christian. But Islam, nonetheless, it is a counterfeit worldview, meaning that that it has some of the same kinds of foundations. Now, ultimately, ultimately, it collapses. It is not true. It's a perversion, a twisting of the truth. But that's different. Judaism would be another example that's different though from secular humanism secular humanism is not an alternative host from christian faith secular humanism is a parasite it is not viable it has nothing sustainable it only lasts and appears viable so long as the host is strong and healthy But the irony of all parasites is that eventually they kill the host, which is the very source of their own life. So that once they've killed the host, they die out as well. Secularism is on its last leg. Sadly though, part of the reason that secularism is on its last leg is because Christendom in the West is not faring well. She has a fever she's in a coma she's on life support and the parasite is starving but that's because the host is currently all but a corpse but the religions that will endure i believe till the end of the age are not parasites but viable hosts themselves counterfeit host albeit but host islam is much more viable than secular humanism if for no other reason simply because islam has a rule of law harsh albeit and it also believes in households and having children any world view that doesn't include procreation is not a viable world view islam will endure Much longer than secularism will. Personally, I believe, per Romans 11, that Islam will be actually the greatest enemy, other than death itself, which Christ will defeat upon his return, and that Islam will be defeated before Christ's return, the Christianizing of all nations, but in part because the Christians in the final hour will gain a great ally. Namely, a revival among the Jews. That the older brother who's been pouting outside as a younger brother, the Gentiles, have come in to the party. That older brother will eventually stop pouting and believe what the younger brother has believed. Humble himself and come in and the two brothers together, now both Christians, with one root, not two trees, but one who is Christ will then finish the Christianizing of the world. There's some sci-fi, post-mill theology for you. All that being said, the point is this, every good thing in the world, it ultimately comes from Christ in his resurrection. Wherever that is believed, blessings follow. And that's not saying a 100% guarantee for each individual person. I believe Christ was raised from the dead. Therefore, I won't be poor. That's not the point. It is a general reality, a general principle that adhering to God's truth, recognizing Christ, his son, not just as allegory, Not just as metaphor, but believing in the triune God and the bodily raised son of God, that these things in society, in general, progressively, slowly, like a mustard seed, like leaven, over time, produce the most powerful, uh, prosperous, and most virtuous societies and cultures in the world. That's what we've seen for 2,000 years. And it may be in the decreative will of God. The secret things belong to Him. Right? This is the revealed will of God. This book, the Bible. The revealed things belong to us and our children forever. The secret things, that is the sovereign will of God. The things He has decreed within the councils of eternity. Those belong to Him. It is the glory of God to conceal the matter. It is the glory of kings, earthly kings. To seek it out. So there are certain things that we do not know. And within the sovereign hidden will of God, one of those things may be to show, to demonstrate through human history, in this earth, in this tapestry, the stage where God is displaying his majesty and power. He may choose for his own glory to display the beauty of Christ through the West and its flourishing and to also display The terrible judgment of rejecting Christ by decimating the West. That is not in his revealed will. That belongs to his secret sovereign will. We hold that as a very real possibility. But we don't work towards that. As Christians, we do not work towards self-fulfilling prophecies. We are not dispensationalists. We are covenant theologians. God works in the world through covenant, through promise, through federal headship. And for those who have union with Christ, we know what to expect. Immunity, persecution, but in God's sovereign will, if He should so choose, immense blessings, immense kindness virtue and transformation of the world. We keep fighting. We keep working. We keep preaching Christ and him crucified and Christ and him risen. The hope of humanity. The only hope of the world. But we as the church should be the first to recognize where judgment comes from, where judgment begins, namely the house of God, And where blessings come from. And all of it is bound up not in a mere principle, but in a person. The risen Lord Jesus. His resurrection is so powerful, so poignant, so profound, that because he rose from the dead, he is reviving and restoring all things. All things are being raised. Some things more quickly than others. Some people more quickly than others. And just as a tree goes through seasons, seasons of growth, seasons of pruning, withering, certain branches, whole branches might die, rot and fall away, but the tree and its root continues. And its overall trajectory, not a perfect, steady, never dipping line of incline, but dips and spikes along the way. Some of these spikes long and severe, but so too, a healthy tree with its root as Christ, it endures and it grows. And that is not merely a Western tree or an American tree. It is a Christian tree. It is a global tree, and our branch may be about to die, or our branch may be going through severe pruning so that the healthy twigs might get more rain and sunlight and eventually take over. That's a secret thing, belonging to the sovereign will of God, but either way, our job is to obey the revealed things, the things he's written in this book, to have no other gods before him, to not make any graven images, to not take his name in vain, to remember the Sabbath, not just once a year, but every week and keep it holy, to honor our father and our mother, that our days might be long in the land, the physical land that we are inheriting. The meek shall inherit the earth, not just heaven. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. We should not steal or support Marxism and socialism and communism, which is theft. We shall not bear false witness, which means Christians need to know history so that they can be truth-tellers. And we shall not covet. Envy is the root. It's the root of progressive religious sentiment It's the root of Marxism, the root of communism, the root of Black Lives Matter, the root of every bad thing we've endured. Envy is at the root of it all. The scripture says that coveting is idolatry. Envy is the root of all kinds of demonic ideology because envy is coveting, and coveting is idolatry. It is to worship stuff. And material rather than the creator who is outside of creation, a most pure spirit without body parts and passions who dwells in inapproachable light. It is the worship of the creature rather than the creator who is to be forever praised. We do not covet. We do not envy. We say, as David says, the lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. The Lord is my portion, my treasure, the strength of my heart forever. He is my shepherd, and I shall not want. This is our blueprint. This is our plan. These are the commands of God, which are good and holy and right, and the fuel for obeying all of them is the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone a crucified Christ not just as example but as substitute dying in our place and a risen Christ who was raised for our justification let's pray father God we thank you for Jesus his life his death his resurrection his ascension that he is seated in honor glory and power and we thank you for his promise that he will return again, whether it be soon or whether he tarry and it be long. In either case, in the same way you did not let his body see decay, so too, he has not left us as orphans, but he has promised to come to us. And not only in his bodily return on the final day, but he has come to us even now, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who exudes the spirit of the risen Christ and who indwells all Christians, all those who believe. We have his presence with us. And we have Christ, our resurrected Lord, his spiritual presence, especially and uniquely with us on the Lord's day. And not just once a year, But every Sunday, Christians all over the world gather together because it is the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath, the day that Christ rose from the dead. We celebrate the resurrection every week, not only every year. And we have been given by your grace and by the power of your spirit, resurrection power as the church to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be his body here on earth, baptizing the nations slowly but surely as we seek to be faithful. Some of us, like Hebrews 11 says, will experience great victory, shut the mouth of lions, conquer, conquer whole armies. Others of us will be sawn in two, drawn and quartered, imprisoned, martyred. But both through victory in this life and even through death and great tragedy, both advance the church. Both advance the glory of the King. To the King, in the name of Jesus, we pray, Amen. He is risen. He is risen Amen. Can I be frank with you for just a second, right here at the end? Look, some of you guys, you're financially supporting this ministry, and from the bottom of my heart, I say, thank you. I cannot thank you enough. However, some of you, you just, you can't afford it. In fact, some of you, you shouldn't afford it. Let's be honest. I mean, we're living in Joe Biden's ridiculous economy. Our nation and our totalitarian political elites lost their minds over the last three years due to COVID. We have written checks that we simply cannot cash. It doesn't matter if people change the definition of a recession. We are living in a recession right now regardless. Some of you are struggling to afford a carton of eggs at the grocery store. You cannot support financially this ministry at this time, nor should you. But you could still help us tremendously. I am asking you, please, if you're willing to do so, Take one minute of your time. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, whatever that might be. This is the way the system works. We want to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as vipers. We need to be strategic. You leave us a five-star review, and our podcast shows up for more people. And the Word of God and courageous theology applied in practical ways to every realm of life gets out there. Help us get it out there. Thanks for tuning in.